Let's open up to the letter of James, so-called, chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt you've heard the social media catchphrase, sorry, not sorry. I think you could entitle this letter, James, not James. Because this is not James, in fact, there are no Jameses in the Bible. At all. There's not a single person named James mentioned anywhere in the Older or New Testament. There are only Jacobs. This is technically, literally the letter of Jacob. So if you thought all your life that, hey, this is James, or I'm reading from the letter of James, or I'm studying from James, or I'm talking about James the Apostle, or I'm talking about many of the other Jameses, James the son of Alphaeus, no, there is no James. If you look at the Scriptures closely, dig in a little further, the Greek word is Jacobus, Jacob. The Hebrew word is Yaakov. Again, Jacob. Every single time you see the name James illuminated or or brought out in the Scriptures, understand it is an anglicized version of the Hebrew Yaakov. Which is interesting because I always thought Jacob was a good anglicized version of Yaakov. What's going on here? How did this change? I mean, if this is true, and, and by the way it is, that all of the texts... In the Greek and the Hebrew, you will not find a Yamas, a James. You know, you only see Yaakov and Yaakovus if you're reading it in the Greek. The first time the name was changed was in the 14th century by the Wycliffe Bible translators. No one's really sure why they did it. And if you look back and try to figure this out, let me know if you learned something. But my only guess is that perhaps they thought in making a translation to English of the New Testament, that they thought, well, maybe we need to say something a little bit different than Yaakov so people don't get confused. Although we really don't. There are so many names that are common in the Scriptures that don't confuse us. But that's the only thing I can come up with. In the late 14th century, they started to call the name James every time they saw Yaakov. Now, in 1611, do you remember what famous translation came out? The King James Bible. Right? So when they were translating and they saw all these Yaakovs, all these Yaakobuses, they thought, hey, let's stick with James. After all, he's king, and it's good to be king. You know? I mean, if you were King James, wouldn't you want to see your name plastered all over the Bible? Maybe not. But he certainly didn't have a problem with it. So from 1611 on, every translation of the Scriptures since then has translated the name Yaakov, James. But this is really Jacob. The name is Jacob, a very Hebrew name. It appears 42 times in the New Testament. It refers to at least four different men, probably just four. Three of them appear in a single verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 13, which says, When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and Yaakov and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, Yaakov the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of Yaakov. So there are three Yaakovs who are called James in our English translations, right there in Acts 1.13. Yaakov, the father of Judas, is only mentioned uh, to distinguish this 
This poor Judas from Iscariot. Think about that for the rest of his life. Right? It's always, oh yeah, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> so this, this Judas is the Judas son of Yaakov. And that's all we hear about that Yaakov. And then there's Yaakov, the son of Alphaeus, who also was an apostle. But with the exception of the listing of the names of the apostles, we really hear nothing about him. He kind of drifts into obscurity. No doubt a man of God, or he wouldn't have been an apostle. But we don't know anything else about that Yaakov. Then we have Yaakov, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. How many times in your life have you said James and John? Well, now you've got to say Yaakov and John. Jacob and John, because that's what his name was. And yet we've made the change. So Yaakov, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, he was martyred by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD, which is listed in Acts chapter 12. He was killed by the sword, probably beheaded. This letter most likely was written in the mid-40s and was not written by Yaakov, the father of Judas, or by Yaakov, the son of Alphaeus, or even Yaakov, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, the most likely candidate for this Yaakov, this James, not James, is the half-brother of Jesus. Yaakov, the half-brother of Jesus. I want to give you three remarkable things to note about this man before we actually get on into the letter. And it's a brief letter, just five chapters. We'll be in and out quickly. Again, very different than the letter we just came out of, the Sermon of Hebrews. This has a different take, which I'll show you. But this Yaakov... First off, note this, didn't begin following Jesus until after the resurrection. You may recall John chapter 7 verse 5 says, not even his brothers were believing in him. Well, that would include Yaakov. Didn't believe in Jesus, thought he was losing his mind, thought he couldn't possibly be who he seemed to be claiming to be. And yet there's a powerful moment in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul writes about. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by, which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to Yaakov. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul writes. Can you imagine for a moment the meeting of Yaakov and his half-brother, the resurrected Jesus Christ. What was that moment like for him? Some think it was similar, perhaps, to Saul's meeting of Jesus on the Damascus Road, which radically changed Saul's life into Paul. The meeting of Yaakov and Jesus radically changed this man as well. He became a, a different person. What a revelation. I think about Joseph when he revealed his identity to his 11 brothers in Egypt, Genesis 45, and what a shocking moment it must have been for them 
to know that they had sold him off into slavery, but now here he is ruling over all Egypt. Think about the meeting between Yaakov and Jesus and recognizing this once half-brother of his is now the ruler of the universe. It is truly God in the flesh. Mind-blowing. What an awakening of radical faith. And you need to understand that about Yaakov. And I'm going to keep calling him that through the study just because I think he deserves to be honored by his actual name and not by James. And if your name is James, that's okay. It's just not his name. A life changed. A life radical. And not before, but after the resurrection. James, not James. That is Yaakov. Also, number two, note this became the key figure of leadership in the Jerusalem church. This was the go-to guy when Peter was freed from prison. You may recall the story in Acts chapter 12. Freed by an angel. Makes his way through the dark streets of Jerusalem and over to the house of a woman named Mary who was the mother of John Mark. You remember the story? A young servant girl named Rhoda went to the door and saw that it was Peter and ran back and told them. And they were all praying for Peter's release. She said, Peter's here. And they're like, shut up. We're praying for Peter's release. <laughs> you know. Peter comes into the house. And what does he say to them? Acts chapter 12, verse 17, he says, Report these things to Yaakov and the brethren. Not just to the elders, not just to the leaders, but Yaakov. He's named, in fact, oftentimes we find in the book of Acts, when the elders of the Jerusalem church, or the elders and apostles of the Jerusalem church are mentioned, they're called elders and apostles, but Yaakov's name is always first. Yaakov and the elders, Yaakov and the leaders. In Acts chapter 15, we see him presiding over the council at Jerusalem that was having that big debate about the Gentile problem. The problem? What was the problem? Well, Gentiles were believing. And Gentiles were being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Gentiles were clearly being accepted by God. This was a new phenomenon for this fledgling movement of, of Christ followers. And in dealing with the question, Yaakov had this to say, Acts chapter 15, verse 19, It is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Let's give them some basic Jewish understanding. But if they need to be circumcised, no, let's not put that on them. Do they need to follow law? No. Do they need to show up at temple? No. Like You know, James and these new believers, all of them, James, not James, are all learning and growing and coming to a new understanding of what it is that God was doing among them. Yaakov, leader of the Jerusalem church, half-brother of Jesus. He's got quite a calling card. In fact, this guy was a big deal in the first century church to everyone but himself. Not to himself. I love the opening line of this letter. Yaakov, a slave of God and of the Master Jesus Christ. That's literally what it says. The bondservant, that's doulos. It's the lowest form of slave in the Greek. Lord is kurios. It speaks of a master. And those two words used together in that sentence, Yaakov is claiming one thing and one thing alone, and that is that he is a servant slave of Jesus Christ, who is master and Lord and authority over him. Not just big bro. The respect here is deep. 
the sense of position is obvious. And it's a great sense, and it's one that as we follow Jesus, I think the longer you follow Jesus, the more you develop that sense. That He is Master. Yes, He has called us friends. But I was sharing earlier today that my, my brother Jim Crouch, we've had this conversation, this ongoing conversation about, about Jesus being our friend. And I'm like, Jim, he, he calls us friend. And Jim's like, yeah, but I have trouble calling him friend. Just because he's, he's master. He's Lord. He's Christ. He's God. And I understand that. And I think the older we get, the more we recognize that we are well, at least we see ourselves as slaves of the house. He calls us sons and daughters of the house, right? Prodigals. We come home saying, would you just give us a job, Lord? And he says, are you kidding me? Kill the fatted calf, put the sandals on their feet, bring the new robe and the ring and let's have a party. My son is alive. And so though he looks at us as his children, Jesus even called himself our brother in Hebrews. And for all of those points of relationship that we have with Jesus and have with God, we are servants. We are bondservants of God and of the Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. James Yaakov never claims this kinship as some kind of Christo-fraternal calling card. He never points it out says, Hey, I'm the half-brother of the Lord, for goodness sakes. Pay attention to what I have to say. I got connections. No, I am a bondservant of the Master. By the way, another half-brother of Jesus had the same attitude. His name was Jude. And in Jude, verse 1 of that one-page letter, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So he does mention his connection to the leader in the church of Jerusalem. But he doesn't do it to be heady. Jude does it just to make sure people know who it is that's writing this letter. Bondservants. Now, this letter, the letter of Yaakov, is probably the earliest of any of the New Testament writings. Most scholars would place this right in the mid-40s. That's remarkable. I mean, this is within 10 to 12 years of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So what comes off the pages here is absolutely fresh Christianity. Spirit-inspired, make no mistake about it. But it's early, it's fresh, and what's remarkable to me is it speaks as practically today, 2,000 years later, as it did when it was first written. Yaakov knew what he was talking about because his inspiration was the Spirit of God. We certainly believe that the letter of Yaakov came before Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And these two letters have often been contrasted. Galatians, the the letter of grace, James, works. You know, faith without works is dead. James is clearly a law guy, he's a works guy, and Paul's a grace guy. I like Paul. I like grace. James can be a little heavy-handed. Some might say, I wouldn't say that. Yes, the letter is a very Jewish take on faith. Coming from a, a very Jewish man, but he never in this letter denies grace. Please know that. Watch that going through. He never seeks to replace grace with our work. For Yaakov, work is always the response 
The response to grace, not the thing that purchases or earns grace. Work is simply the reaction to grace. It's how I respond to God. And if I don't have any response to God, well then have I really received grace? Do I understand forgiveness if it doesn't change me in, in one way or another? I think this letter in Galatians can be described as two great ships that pass in the night, both of which carry invaluable treasure. And we need to read them hand in hand. They, they balance each other out. Uh, Yaakov's letter, this letter, is a hands-on, concrete counterbalance to what Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, the letter of grace. This letter is practical, filled with practical explanations and proverbial depictions. There's lots of kind of Hebrew word pictures that emerge in this short letter. And all of this is about how faith works. If you want a basic understanding of the letter of Yaakov, it's how faith works. What does it look like? I mean, if anyone's tired of showing up at church and just claiming to have faith, but having no idea what that does in real life, this is the letter for you. This is great teaching for the most mature of believers, and it's great teaching for the new believer, or the new believer. Newbie lever. Okay? You're brand new in the faith. James will help. Yaakov. <laughs> See, it's, it's a lifetime of calling this guy by the wrong name. If you're brand new to Jesus, this letter's wonderful for you. If you are seasoned in your faith, you need to come back to Yaakov. Because in both cases, we, we gain a handle on faith. This has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And here's one way that it's very different than our study of Hebrews. Hebrews was a sermon. Hebrews built from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 13 with that great final exaltation of Jesus that we looked at on Sunday morning. You know, that God brought forth. Brought forth. He lifted up Jesus in crucifixion. He lifted up Jesus in resurrection. Lifted up Jesus in the ascension. And this marvelous sermon works out the whole thing before us. It's beautifully written and it's intentional and just builds and builds and builds as it goes. James is all over the place. Yaakov. It's topic after topic. He moves from one topic to another. Sometimes the topics don't even seem connected at all. And it's not that he's wild and random. It's just that this letter lacks the same kind of sermonic cohesive flow that we saw in Hebrews. This is more of a, of a Proverbs type letter. With topic after topic, moving on, packing in user-friendly teachings for daily discipleship. So that's this letter, that's Yaakov. I don't want to tell you any more about the letter because the letter really speaks for itself. This is one of the easiest ones, by the way, to read. You know how we had to spend a lot of time in Hebrews breaking things down and going back to Old Testament sacrifice to understand what was really being talked about there. We had to unpack things carefully because so much was in that amazing sermon. This one, man, it is what it is. I was studying through this during the week and thinking, man, I could just read this and go home. I don't have to tell people what this means. I'm going to. Because that's what I do. But I don't have, I mean, it's so self-explanatory, so straightforward. One last thing I want you to know about Yaakov. This man who, again, he, he came to faith after the resurrection. He became the key figure in the first century church. 
And thirdly, once he gave his heart to Jesus, truly as Master, his devotion was knee-deep. Knee-deep. That is, he rarely got up off his knees. I told you this recently, that he had a nickname. He was known as Old Camel Knees. Those of you who are in Israel recently, you know what camel knees look like. I mean, they look like built-in knee pads. You know, and they're all kind of rough and, and wrinkly. Ugliest things you ever did see. But they work well. And James, Yaakov, got that nickname for his constancy in prayer. He says toward the end of this letter, James 5.16, we'll say James because that's, <laughs> that's what our Bibles say. Because as Roni would say, it's tradition. And we don't argue with tradition. (laughs) But in chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And this, this Yaakov, his devotion to Jesus was so intense that when he was called upon to renounce Christ, he absolutely refused to. And Josephus and Eusebius, the church historian, They tell us, they confirm, he was pushed off the high point of the temple. And when the fall didn't kill him, the stones of the scribes and the Pharisees did. And Yaakov went home to be with his master in 62 AD. Well, buckle up. Here we go. Yaakov, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And that's literally to the twelve tribes of the diaspora. I mean, that literal translation. He is using a very Hebrew word, the diaspora, which is the name given to Jews driven out of the land. And it's a name that went all the way back to 722 B.C. when northern Israel was captured by Assyria and driven out of the land. And then 586 B.C. when Babylon destroyed southern Judah and carried them off into captivity. And from that point forward, Jews began to be dispersed. That's the diaspora throughout the world. Absent from their land, always saying next year in Jerusalem... And of course, you know, after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, a small group of them came back into the land, followed by yet another small group, but Jews from that point forward stayed spread throughout the world, the diaspora. And James writes to them, to the 12 tribes who are the diaspora. But this was a recent dispersion that he's talking about. Not the 722, not 586, and certainly not yet the driving out that would happen in 70 A.D. Or beyond that, in 136 A.D., another driving out as the diaspora just deepened and got more intense. This is a very specific diaspora that we can, we can track it right to a certain point in Scripture. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, On that day, and we're talking about the day of the martyrdom of Stephen, A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the apostles, the the elders, the the leaders of that Jerusalem church, they stayed. They didn't stay because they they were hiding out. They stayed, I think, to duke it out, spiritually speaking. They would not be driven out from their home and from that first church there in Jerusalem. And so Yaakov was among them. 
staying there in Jerusalem, and he saw fit after this dispersion, after this, this horrible persecution broke out, he realized there were Christian Jews all over the place. We say Christian Jews. He didn't see it that way. We had an interesting conversation in Israel with, with Roni. Everybody wants to know what Roni believes. What Roni, no one asked me what I believed. But they all want to know, you know, are you a Christian? Are you a Jew? And, and, and are, you, are you Messianic? And, and he has a problem with the word Messianic. I mean, to his way of thinking, you're either a Jew or you're a Christian. You know, if you become a Christian, then you're a Christian. You know, and he doesn't get the Messianic Jew thing, which is interesting, and maybe that's more of a conversation than, than we need to have right now. But Roni was, was talking about this idea of what are we and what is our identity? I'll tell you what Yaakov would say. Yaakov would say, I came to understand who Yeshua really was. He, he's my Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one that, that my entire faith has pointed to, and therefore believing in Him does not make me less Jewish. And at the same time, for you and me as Gentiles, guess what? Paul says we were grafted in. So we have a certain identity with Judaism as well. Now I'm not going to get all weird on you. Rick went out and he said that we all have to be Jews now. No, I'm not saying that. Christian, Christ follower, disciple of Jesus, Talmudim, if you want to go with that. You know, it just means disciple in Hebrew. I mean, whatever you want to call yourself, I don't really care as long as you're calling yourself after Jesus. Right? And you call. You call followed Jesus. And so when he wrote to the 12 tribes who were in dispersion abroad to the diaspora, he was writing to Jews who rightly so believed in their Messiah, whose entire lives led to this point. And so he doesn't distinguish Messianics or Christian Jews or those of you who follow Christ who are dispersed. He just writes to the diaspora. Because in his mind, it's just following what all the fathers and the prophets had said. This is a very Hebrew letter, which is interesting because we just came out of a Hebrew letter, but again, the difference is sermon versus letter. And this Hebrew letter goes out to a very Jewish audience, driven from Judea. We also understand by reading through this letter, many of them were very impoverished. All of them were facing some sense of oppression. We know they meet in synagogues. He he says in in chapter 2, verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And then he goes on to make his point. But that word assembly in verse 2 of chapter 2 is synagogue. So he's assuming they're meeting in synagogues. That's what the first century church did. They didn't go off somewhere else and start building basilicas. They just met where they met. Because they're talking about Yeshua, the Messiah, in the synagogue, which is a good place to talk about Yeshua. So he's writing to these in synagogues. These are people that in reading this, and we'll bring this up as we go, but they get the application of the law. They understand Torah. So he doesn't have to do a whole lot of explaining that. He he uses the word law and he'll mention it, and they understand exactly what he's talking about. And finally, the people receiving this letter, they respect the leadership of Yaakov. 
they recognize simply by his moniker at the beginning, Yaakov, bondservant of God and of the Master Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are of the diaspora abroad, greetings, that's all they need, and they understand and they respect Yaakov. Why does all of this matter? Because this letter, still wonderfully helpful after 2,000 years, originally went to Jewish disciples of Messiah before the Gospel began to spread to Gentiles. Now that puts this letter in a very unique place in the New Testament. This is before Galatians, again. Before the issue of Gentile followers at all. This is just going out to the natural Jewish followers of Jesus, which was the earliest of the early church. That's when this letter was received. And to these Jews, the Holy Spirit inspired Yaakov to send a letter of great practicality. And away we go. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word endurance is hupomone. We've seen the word before. It means a, a patient continuance steadfastness, the testing of your faith produces a steadfast faith, a strong faith. Testing's good, James says. It's a, a faith-building exercise. And he says, and let endurance, let hupomone, let steadfastness have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm going to give you several topics and you can jot these down if you're a note taker. And the first one out of the gate is to greet your trials with joy. Greet your trials with joy. He says, consider it all joy. But what's really interesting is he right before that said greetings, which you would expect at the beginning of a letter. That's nice, greetings. But then consider it all joy. And what James is doing, Yaakov, what Jacob is doing here is he's he's using using a wordplay. For the word greetings and joy are the same word. They're the same word, the same root word anyway, which is charis. Charis for greetings and kara for for joy. And in essence, greet your trials with joy. Joy is the way to greet a trial. And note that he doesn't say if, he says when you meet trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because the Spirit wants us to know something. We will. We must. It's part of the deal. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be glad. He might as well have said, greet your trials with joy. Because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have covered this over and over. You can't read through the New Testament without coming face to face with the issue of trials and tribulations and persecutions and oppressions and challenges and the biblical call to greet them with joy. That's not dumb happiness. Oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble again. <laughs> it's joy. God, this is hard. Thank you. Jesus, this, this hurts, but I know you're doing something here. Thank you. Greet your trials 
with joy. It's a certain aspect of the Christian life. But you know what? It's also a certain aspect of life. Period. Everybody faces trials. Christian and non-Christian alike. Everybody gets hit with hard times. Hard times come to everyone. Sometimes we as Christians think we have a corner on the market of hard times. No, we don't. Many of you came to Christ because life was so hard anyway. And messed up and you finally realized, I can't do this myself. So you turn to Jesus. And the question for us is, when you face hard times, are you going to face them with greeting or with grumbling? Or are you going to face them with a, with a welcome or a whine? How are you going to deal with the trials when they come? One of the big differences between the believer and the non-believer is the believer has someone to greet those trials with. The believer has a sense of joy that you don't get outside of Jesus. And by the way, I don't say that exclusively. I say it inclusively because the offer is to anyone who believes in Jesus. And any and everyone can. Regardless of where you've been or what you've done or who you are, believing in Jesus changes it all. And we have Jesus with us. And the change that ought to come over us when we come into faith in Jesus is that suddenly we begin to greet these hard times with joy. We had them before, we're going to have them after. But something changes in us as the Spirit begins to move. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Greet your trials with joy. Welcome them with the satisfaction of an abundant life. And listen, the thing that maintains the abundant life that Jesus offers is a joyful greeting that He sets in motion. A joyful greeting, no matter how it shows up at your front door, greet your troubles, your trials, and even, yes, your temptations with joy. Have you ever done that? There's a weird thought. Finding yourself tempted to some sin. And you all know what yours is. I don't. Be glad, because I'd be telling you, right? No, I wouldn't. We all have our lures, right? We all have those areas of our lives that we really don't want anyone to know about. We have the temptations. Have you ever thanked Jesus in the moment of temptation? I mean, what a great time to do it. What are you talking about, Rick? That's, that's kind of weird. No, it's greeting the trial or the temptation. And I'll tell you more about this in a moment, but it's the same word in the Scriptures. Trial and temptation are the same word. It's greeting even my temptations with joy. Now, I don't have a problem with marijuana. I just want you to know that up front. But let's say I did. Let's say that I had been into it, I had used it, Driving by a, a cannabis store is, is difficult for me. And, and because of that, of that usage, and some, some perhaps have been there. But imagine that that's me and I'm driving by the store and I feel the urge to pull in and, and just to pick up something. Just a few edibles because it would make the end of the day so much easier. And I feel that temptation in that moment to say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, as I drive on. 
Because even temptations overcome make you stronger in the Lord. They increase your endurance, your hupumone, your steadfastness. So when your temptations come, one sure way to fight them back and to win over them is to immediately start praising God for them. That'll spin you around fast. Thank you, Lord, for putting the alcohol on the table. I'm going somewhere else now. Thank you, Jesus, for this struggle, that struggle, this issue in my life. Thank you that I'm facing it right now because I know you're with me and together we walk the other way. We make the best choice. It's what he's going to say at the very end of the chapter, if we ever get there. But Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. So even to find joy in the moments of temptation is a remarkable truism of following Jesus Christ. It produces abundant life by endurance. And note this, Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn. What does that mean? It shines brighter and brighter and brighter to the full day. Check this out. It shines brighter and brighter. Romans 1.17 says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Do you see what's being said here? Over and over. Brighter and brighter, from faith to faith, from glory to glory, we're in this progression of the abundant life. It's this growing life. And as we face the trials and temptations and we greet them with joy, we are moving into brighter days, like the sun rising in the morning. So greet the trials with the joy of the Lord and you will be completed by the Spirit of God. You will be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. As he says here at the end of of, uh, verse 4, lacking in nothing. And, verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Life not making sense to you? This is one of the most practical verses, I think, in all the Bible. Anyone lacking wisdom? Let me put it to you another way. (laughs) Hands going up. Good. And you notice the ones whose hands just went up? These are our millennials. They know something we need to know. Any of you lacking wisdom? How about putting it this way? Any of you uncertain what to do right now in your life? Any of you have a difficult decision you're trying to make and you're not sure how to make it? Ask. It is so simple. You lack wisdom, you ask God for wisdom. I don't know how to face this, Lord. I don't know what to do here, Lord. I've got three decisions in front of me and they all look good to me. Which road should I take, Lord? Ask Him. We're real good at asking each other. I get people asking me all the time, Hey, Rick, what do you think I should do in this situation? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not in your situation. I can tell you what I would do, but it might be wrong for you. Ask Him. Stop and say, Lord, I need your wisdom. Give me wisdom. The second thing to note here is ask for the wisdom you lack. Again, this is incredibly practical. Greet your trials with joy. Ask for the wisdom you lack because the Bible says God gives to all generously and without reproach. What does that mean? It means God's not going to say, when you go to Him and say, Lord, I need your wisdom again, the Lord's not going to respond Really? You're asking me for wisdom again, dummy? 
haven't you figured it out yet? I mean, how many times are you going to come to me and ask for wisdom, you moron? He wouldn't say that. He doesn't reproach the request for wisdom. He welcomes it. We pray this all the time in our shepherds' meetings because we're a bunch of idiots. I'm telling you. I, I mean, I'm just I'm claiming chief idiot. Okay. Do you have any idea? I mean, you guys would be terrified if you saw the discussions we had and saw how little we really know. We start so often. I'm, I'm playing with this. I have some very wise men around me, but but it's because of the request for wisdom. I can't even tell you. I mean, I've lost count of the number of times in our opening prayer together, somebody says, Lord, we need your wisdom tonight. Well, that's just doing exactly what Yaakov said in verse 5 of his letter. Ask. Ask for the wisdom you lack. Jesus said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Matthew 7, verse 7. And you Bible students know that's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because God will give generously and without reproach. Every time you ask, He's there to answer. For every ounce of wisdom I need, God brings it. I have been amazed in my life over the years at the things that I have learned and come to understand that I didn't know before asking. He is a God of wisdom who wants to give wisdom. Jesus said, everyone who keeps asking receives. And he who keeps seeking finds. And to him who keeps knocking, it will be open. Well, great. But if I ask for wisdom, how do I know if I'm walking in wisdom? How do I know I've received it? And it's a great question. Well, James Yaakov is going to tell us, if you look over in chapter 3, verse 13... And I'm just going to point this out quickly because we'll come back to it when we get to chapter 3. But he says, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But, but, but Yaakov, what does that look like? Look at verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, it's reasonable, it's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You know what? Tag verse 17 every time you ask for wisdom. Read that verse and say, is this what's happening in my response, in my understanding? As I begin to make a decision, does verse 17 describe what's going on in my life? Very practically speaking, you know you've received wisdom from God when you are in a place of being pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and again, full of mercy and the rest. And we'll look at that more intently when we get closer. Maybe even on a Sunday morning, we'll talk about that wisdom. But if you lack wisdom, keep asking God. But listen, verse 6, But he must ask in faith without any doubting. (laughs) I love how black and white Yaakov is. Without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now that's the first of, of many Hebrew word pictures. Yaakov is very picturesque in the way that he writes, and he, he describes this doubting like the surf of the sea. I mean, you can imagine the waves rolling in. I, I saw on Facebook... Uh, the other night, one of our sisters uh, posted a, um, just a short video of the waves out on the south end of, of Whidbey Island. 
And it was on a real wind. I think it was actually Sunday afternoon. Really windy and big waves, which is unusual for, uh, I think it was Penn Cove actually. Unusual to see out there. But just frothing and back and forth and splashing. And James says, that's doubt. That's what your doubt looks like. You can't make up your mind and you're here and you're there and you're all over the place. And, and that's, that's someone who doubts. Now you may read this and say, ah, man, that, that's hard. I, I have to ask God without any doubt? I struggle with doubt all the time, you might say. I don't know that I'm, that I'm really listening. I don't know that I'm really making the right decisions. I, I struggle with doubt. Okay, he's not talking about self-doubt. All of us have self-doubt. He's saying, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, ask God trusting God. Not trusting that you're going to somehow magically figure things out, but that God is going to respond. If you're going to ask for wisdom, don't say, oh, give me wisdom, and then continue to froth around in your doubt. If you're going to ask for wisdom, expect that God will bring it. Trust that He is good for His Word. Don't be double-minded. I love the word double-minded here in verse 8. It's dipsukos. Don't be a dipsukos. I'm just not sure if I believe God. Dipsukos. It's perfect. It means wavering. It means back and forth, hesitating. In fact, it describes hopping on one foot. That is not faith. That's just dumb. I'm just dancing around here. You know what that's like. I think of Elijah up on Mount Carmel. And he was facing off with 450 prophets of Baal. And 400 prophets of Asherah. And by the way, those 450 prophets of Baal were probably all Jews. They weren't just pagans. We know that because they all received a Jewish punishment for their pagan ritual but but he's up there Elijah and he's facing them and it says in 1 Kings 18.21 Elijah came near to all the people and said how long will you hesitate between two opinions the word hesitate there it's the Hebrew equivalent to dipsukos in the Greek this, this wavering this double mindedness this back and forth Elijah says if the Lord is God follow him if Baal follow him And the people did not answer him a word. He totally silenced them. They just stood there dumbfounded. Stop hesitating, he says. Stop bouncing back and forth. The word hesitate in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's pasach. Pasach. Does that sound familiar? Bible students, you know what that means? It's the Hebrew word for Passover. It's the Passover. It's called the pasach. And he's saying, like God said, I I will pass over. And understand the, the noun form of the word of Pesach, the noun form means Passover, as in the Passover uh, of the Jews. But the adjective form means to limp or jump back and forth and back and forth. And that's what the people were doing there with Elijah. And that's what James is talking about. Yaakov, I'm going to correct myself every single time. It's what he's talking about when he says, ask in faith, stop jumping around. Don't say, Lord, uh, I need your wisdom, and then rush off to get wisdom somewhere else. If you're going to ask for it, trust Him to deliver it. Chapter 4, verse 2, He even makes this statement, You do not have because you do not ask. 
And Jesus said in John 16.24, Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive. Why? Or, or how? So that your joy may be made full. So, so greet your trials with joy and ask for the faith that you lack. And, and number three, glory in high humility. Glory in high humility, verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. This is one of those marvelous oxymorons of Scripture. That what the world sees as high is actually very low. And what, and what the world sees as low, God says, no, that is to be exalted. Humbleness is a place of exaltation. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And there's another, the second Hebrew word picture. All flesh is grass. That's what we are. That is how lasting these lives are. We're fooled because in our flesh we live 70, 80, 90, sometimes 100 years. So we think we have some sense of longevity. No. In the scheme of eternity, we're blades of grass that are blown dry and torn away by the wind. We are not lasting. And because we're no stronger than grass, rich and poor alike, Yaakov says, a little dose of humility is a good thing. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7, and we know that, that Yaakov is, is borrowing from this. This is one of the multiple times he borrows from the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah said, The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Want to stand forever? Put your trust in the word of God. Believe Him at His word. I mean, after all, what do we really have to glory in anyway? You know, men have built empires and they still rot in the grave. People have vast, you know, avenues of wealth. And what good does it do? You know, the pine box versus the golden coffin makes no difference whatsoever for the person inside. We're just like grass. I love what he said through Jeremiah. Chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me and that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Want to boast? Boast in Him. You want to be proud of something? Be proud of the fact that you know Jesus. And in all other things, be humble. Glory in high humility. If you happen to be humble in life circumstance... Maybe you don't make a lot of money. Maybe you're not in that big a position wherever you you work or whatever you do. Hey, praise the Lord. Marvelous. You're already there. And if you happen to be rich in well-being, seek humbleness by all means. And either way, live for the crown of life. That's number four. 
Live for the crown of life. Verse 12, he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trials, or under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Another powerful verse, and I think what you'll notice as we go through Yaakov's letter is how many of these single verses we have referred to multiple times over the years. You go, oh, that's, that's Yaakov. Yes, it is. Again, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he's been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So we're right back to trials and endurance. But note this. To persevere under trial by loving the Lord not only brings maturity and steadfastness, but it brings majesty, that is, the crown of life. This is interesting to me because this being the first letter out of the New Testament letters, it's the first mention of the crown of life. Yaakov is the first one to tell us there's a crown. There are actually five crowns, and we're going to talk about that when we get into Revelation, I'm sure. But this is the first that's mentioned, the crown the crown of life. And it's promised to those who simply love the Lord. And know what he says. He says, God promised this. The Lord has promised this. Well, when did the Lord promise this? If you look back, you can read in Psalm 103, verse 2, Psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. And that's as close as we get to any promise of a crown of life. I mean, I looked all over the place. You will not find, prior to the letter of Yaakov, you will not find a promise of a crown of life in the Hebrew Scriptures. Just that God crowns you with loving kindness, with grace and compassion. Well, so when did Jesus, when did the Lord promise this crown of life? Fifty years after Yaakov wrote this. That's amazing. The Lord promised a crown of life to those who love Him. When, when Yaakov? Well, you'll find out in fifty years. When John wrote down what Jesus told him in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's the promise. I love the wording. It's so interesting to me. Yaakov in the mid-40s says the Lord promised the crown of life. And John writes in the mid-90s that the Lord promises it. I mean, we see the promise 50 years after James or or Yaakov already said that it was promised. How, How does that work? Apparently, this is something Jesus said more than once. I have a feeling, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling Yaakov heard his brother mention the crown of life at some point. I have a feeling perhaps in the days of the resurrection, those 40 days when Jesus was among them and and appearing to them and talking with them, that He probably at that point promised the crown of life. And I'm certain of this, that the first century church was fully aware that there was coming ahead of them a crown of life and they lived to that. They lived looking forward. They lived believing that a crown would come. Get this, it's so important to love the Lord and to look for and to live for the crown of life. The crown of life is not just a crown to wear. I know you know what I'm going to say. It's a crown to worship with. 
Right? That, that's what you thought I was going to say, some of you. You worship with the crown. They cast their crowns before the throne. Revelation 4.10. And that's great and that's true, but it's more than that. The crown of life is something you wear. It's something you worship with. But it also indicates your future position in the kingdom. It's like a badge of honor. No, it's more like, it's more like a name tag of position. What are you, what are you talking about, Rick? Well, Revelation 1.6 says He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, You have made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. We don't reign without a crown. Hey, the crown of life. It says in Revelation 20, verse 6, We will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, put that together. I mentioned several weeks ago before leaving, I mentioned the parable of the minas. And it's such a significant parable. Luke chapter 19. The parable of the minas. It's, it's the one where a landowner goes away and he calls in his servants and he says, Here, I'm going to give you ten minas, and I'm going to give you five minas, and I'm going to give you one. And I want you to take care of things while I'm gone. And he goes away and he leaves it with them. A mina is a hundred days wages. So this is a fair chunk of cash. All right? And the one who's given ten, it's ten times a hundred days of wages. All right? The one who has five, it's the equivalent of five hundred days of wages. And then the other one, still, the guy who only gets one mina, still gets a hundred days of wages to do something with while the master's away. Master comes back, if you know the parable, the one who invested ten was put in charge of ten cities. Interesting. And the one who invested five is put in charge of five cities. I submit to you that they're wearing the crown of life. I submit to you that they are ruling as mayors or governors of literal places in the actual millennial kingdom. And that's what he's talking about there. What about the dude with the one mina? Well, he did nothing. He hid his wages in a handkerchief, which I submit to you is a bad idea. Don't hide your love for Jesus in a hanky until He comes. You say you love the Lord and James, Yaakov is all over this. You say you believe in Jesus. You say you love Jesus. Live that way. You say you have faith in God. Let's see it. Do it. Live it. Make it part of who you are. Man, if you you hide your love for Jesus, and I, I fear that far too many Christians are tucking the minus in a handkerchief instead of living it out boldly, vocally, confessing before men the name of Jesus Christ. Man, if that's you, you'll be lucky if you end up with a paper party hat. Live for the crown of life. Live for it. Now, Yaakov transitions from trials to temptations, as I told you before, using the same word. So that which is a trial can also be a temptation. Verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, or when he is tried, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one when he is tempted, or each one is tempted, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust... Then when lust, and here's here's the third word picture, by the way, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
This whole birthing process, the birth of a monster, is what lust does when it births sin, which brings forth death. The word trial back in verses 2 and 3, and repeated again in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Same word as temptation in verses 13 and 14. They're the Greek word, uh, parazo or parasmos. And they mean trial or temptation or testing or proving. The same word is used. And the only difference in the word is in the context of its usage. That is, who it's being connected to. And I'll explain that, but number five, if you're keeping track of all these things... Les, are we up to number five? Good. All right. Because I was told that I missed a number five Sunday morning. I don't think I did, but I was told that I did. It's possible. Did I? Ha! You got it? Provision of goodness from Sunday See? That was second service? Yeah, I I did first service too. I'm sure of it. Yeah, let's move on. So, number five, in your notes, if you're taking notes, don't bear sin, be born again. Don't bear sin. Lust bears sin. Lust births sin. And this is a graphic picture that that he paints right here. Of not trials, but of temptations that are answered and received and lived through. This, it's interesting when he says, when sin is accomplished, the word accomplished is finished. So when it's done doing what it's going to do, it brings forth death, brings forth means from the womb. Right from the womb, death. Any of you ever see the 1988 TV movie, Alien Nation? I'm, I know I'm just one of the weird ones. I saw this. It was a big deal back in 1988, and there was a birth scene in it of a woman who had been impregnated by an alien. It's the kind of scene in a movie that makes you think, I am so thankful that I live in a, girl, in a world created by a loving God, and not in this bizarre universe that Hollywood likes to paint for us. This birth scene was horrible. Woman's in. The, I mean, they don't show you anything. It's not like you know, blah blah. No, she's she's lying there, and she gives birth to a baby, and they bring the baby around. It's cute little baby, little baby. Brings it over to its mother, and as soon as it gets close to its mother, it opens its mouth and shoots out a forked tongue at the mother, and she just starts screaming. And all of a sudden, this beautiful birth moment. Of course, you should have known because the music behind it. And I know because I just watched it on YouTube last week. But the music behind it. <laughs> I had to be clear about my example. But it's like going, don, 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 baby's born. Cute little baby, don, don, something bad's coming. <laughs> you just know. And, and, and then so the baby, and they, and they take the baby away, and they rush it out of the room because it just shot on a forked tongue. That's not supposed to happen. And the nurse then says, as the music continues, don, don, and the mother's screaming, the nurse says, oh, it looks like twins. And out crawls this green lizard. A lizard comes out. It's just totally disgusting. (laughs) What does that have to do with Yaakov and these wonderful scriptures? Listen, that's what sin does. Sin births. Lust births an ugliness called sin. And sin will finish you. And sin, when it's finished, brings death. 
And I use that grotesque example because that's exactly the kind of example that Yaakov has just painted for us. This birthing of something horrible. The lust. Man, if you, if you find yourself lusting in temptation, remember in that moment, praise the Lord. Thank God for the trial that's making your faith stronger and follow Jesus home. Because that lust will birth sin. And once sin is birthed, it has one job and that is to finish you. John 10.10, Jesus said the whole verse, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what He's about. Don't be deceived. That's what He's about. To destroy you. I come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's the difference between the trials that God sends and the temptations that the devil sends. You might say, how can he say this in the same breath, in the same word? Trial and temptation. But he says here that God doesn't tempt, but he just told us, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. So do trials come by God? I would say yes. Do temptations come by God? No. But Rick, it's the same word. Yeah, but it all has to do with the intention. The Lord never puts something in front of you with the intent to destroy you, but to save you and to strengthen you and to build you up. The devil always puts stuff in front of you to destroy you. Never to help you. Never to encourage and never to build up. God is going for your good. The devil is designing your destruction. God tests and tries and proves. Satan tempts. And that's the big difference. And the only thing really that can stand between, that can stand in the way of God accomplishing the good in your life, the steadfastness, that hupomone endurance, the only thing that can stand in the way of that is you. Or in my life, it's me. Trust Him and wear the crown. Well, continuing on, you're saying, how are we going to finish? We're, we're, we're actually almost there. Trust me. Trust Him. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And we think Father of lights is is a reference to the Jewish early morning prayer, where, where He is praised for bringing the light of day. Do not be deceived. And this is just what I was saying to you. Every good thing, every perfect gift, that comes from God. Everything that happens in your life that comes from God is for a good purpose, even if it's difficult as you go through it. That's how God works. There is no variation or shifting shadow. He is consistent. He's faithful. Verse 18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. What does that mean? Verse 18 is a dramatic contrast to verse 15. Okay, verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In verse 18, but in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, that is, He birthed us by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. What a powerful verse. He's talking about us being born again. Verse 18 is all about being born again. In contrast to what sin births, which is death, 
God, by all goodness, births new life in us. And we are born again. First fruits, he says. We're, we're a kind of first fruits, Yaakov says. Paul's going to say the same thing in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. That Christ is the first fruits. Well, guess what? He's the first fruits of the first fruits. And every time that phrase first fruits is used in the New Testament, it's referring to resurrected ones. What's cool is we're already the first fruits, even though we haven't been resurrected yet. We're in. We're the first fruits in this world. Which is why Yaakov says, so that we would be a kind of first fruits. See, we're seen as resurrected ones, though we haven't been resurrected. You could say, we're the raptured ones, even though we haven't been raptured yet. But it's so absolutely assured by God that we are like first fruits, even though we haven't experienced that first fruit resurrection. And note he uses this phrase, and it's a powerful phrase and important, especially for Sunday morning. By the word of truth. Every time you see that phrase in the New Testament, every single time, mark my words on this, the word of truth means the gospel. It means the gospel. So what he's just said in verse 18 again is he brought us forth. We have been born again by the gospel as resurrected ones. That is in essence the heart of what Yaakov is saying here. The gospel. Listen to the other times this, this phrase, the word of truth, is used. Second Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, We're commending ourselves to you in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, the second time, In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The third time, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And then finally in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, which again is the gospel. Along with this verse, the word of truth, that phrase is used five times in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, five is the number of grace. The word of truth. The grace of the gospel of God in the New Testament. And it is by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that we have been born again. And so, man, don't bear sin. Be born again. Don't allow lust to conceive sin and bring forth death. Instead, be born again by the gospel of Jesus Christ as a first fruits person. Verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, oh, this is a tough one, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now stick with me just a little longer here. God does not rush. Jesus was never in a hurry. How many times have we talked about Glint waiting on the Lord until we're blue in the face and yet we're still learning to wait on the Lord. God is never in a hurry. 
In fact, throughout the Bible, it is rare that we are ever told to do anything in a hurry. Hurry up, rush, be fast about it, be quick, oh, go, go, go. There's only one time that I have found, at least in the New Testament, where it's very clear that we're told to hurry to do anything. And you know what it is? Hurry to hear. That's number six. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger, but be quick to hear. If you're going to do anything fast, listen up. Listen up. This is the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Or Proverbs 29, 20. I like this one. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. You know, we aren't to rush to speak or rush to anger. Well, I had a righteous anger. Did you? You know what? Ain't no such thing as a righteous anger that flies off the handle. The only time we see a righteous anger, we see in Jesus, and it was not hasty. And for time's sake tonight, I'm just going to tell you, read Mark chapter 11. Because when Jesus goes into the temple and clears out the temple, and you know, I mean, by description, He's in a rage. He's turning over tables. Okay, I confess I've done it. Early on in my marriage, immature, emotional, flying off the handle, I turned over a coffee table. My little macaroni and cheese went all over the TV. It's a shameful moment in my history. Jesus is turning over tables. You know He's a little hot under the collar. He's made a whip. He is driving out the money changers. He's driving out the animals. He's letting the animals go free. The birds are flying. It's craziness, right? Right? So Jesus was in, was in a, a flying off the handle of anger, right? Wrong. Because Mark chapter 11, verse 11 tells us when He came into Jerusalem, He went into the temple and He looked around at everything and then He went home to Bethany for the night. And then the next day he came in and he cleared the temple. See, even the anger of Jesus was not in a hurry. It was a righteous anger because it worked the righteousness of God. It wasn't premeditated. It, I mean, it was premeditated. It wasn't hasty. He thought it through and he knew how he was supposed to act. Anger often comes when we are rushing, when we are reacting. You know, knee jerk reacting. Man, if you have knee-jerk reactions, then you're just a knee-jerk. Put that together with dipsukas, and there you go. Don't be a dip and don't be a jerk. Man, when we are hurried and harried by life, that's, that's when I, my anger is the least controlled is when I'm stressed out. And I don't even have to be stressed out by children or, or my wife or my family. I can be stressed out by something going on here at the church and I go home and if I'm in a rush to get things done that's when I'm angry and that's when I sin don't be in a hurry listen be quick to listen hurry to hear the voice of the Spirit of God you find yourself stressed best thing you can do stop and listen Lord what are you saying to me right now help me to hear you and by the way if your life is in a rush right now You need to hurry up and hear God. You need to slow it down. You need to pause. And when you think you're hearing Him, (laughs) it's okay even then to take a Selah to pause and be sure you are hearing Him. Well, God told me to do this. He didn't tell you to do it in a hurry. 
I know, I've seen over and over. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down there, partner. Listen up. Hurry to hear. Verse 21, and this is number 7 in your notes, do the Word. Do the Word. Verse 21 through 25, he talks about doing the Word, being doers of the Word. And we're going to look at that on Sunday morning. Skip down to verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be (laughs) religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows, orphans, and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Listen. Number eight, last one, practice pure religion. Practice pure religion. The word religion here is threskia. Threskia, which means worshipful. Okay, so religion is to be worshipful. The word religious, same word, is the root, is threskos. And literally it means trembling or fearful. Which again is a position of worship, a a trembling before God. A fearfulness, not not being afraid of or terrified by, but but a, a, a real recognition of who God is. It's not cold ceremony. I've often said we're not about religion, we're about relationship. But this kind of religion, yes. Worshipful, trembling, recognizing who it is that we are devoted to, a deeply devoted awe, not a cold ceremony. That's not religion. I saw so many churches in Israel actually passed by most most of them because it's so cold. Man, I'd rather be out on the Sea of Galilee. But you go into these places and, and there's just this, this motion. And, the, and I'm not saying that everybody in, in those churches have no devotion. I know there's devotion there. And I know there's some deep feelings among people in more religious or liturgical churches than, than we have here. So I'm not comparing that. But the reality is, cold ceremony, that kind of religion, God has nothing to do with. But this kind of religion, pure and undefiled religion, this is religion that acts, that moves on the deep devotion. The reason why he mentions visiting orphans and widows doesn't mean that that's the exclusive ministry of the church. What it means is he looks at the two people on earth who most need to be cared for and says, you go visit them. You're not going to get a lot of uh, applause for that. You're not going to be seen as some bigwig traveling with the gospel if all you're doing with your time is out with widows and orphans. But see, Yaakov says, that's, that's where it's at, man. That's caring for those who have no one to care for them. The widow and the fatherless. Take care of them. Look after them. And, and he says... And it's also to keep oneself unstained by the world. I'll finish with this. Yaakov can say this. He can describe this kind of deep devotion. Because he was a man who'd rather be pushed from the temple and stoned to death than to renounce Jesus Christ as his Lord and Master. Pure religion, untainted religion, is never the stuff of ambiguity. It's tangible deeds. 
It's not claims and fames and feelings and emotions. It's the Word and it's the Spirit at work in us. It's visible in us. And Yaakov is going to get into this. You tell me you have faith. If I don't see your faith, you don't have faith. But a deeply devoted faith in Jesus Christ, man, that's going to come out in you everywhere you go and whatever you do. It's just going to be seen. You can't keep it in. And Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon said this, I would like to see a Christian not kept in a glass case away from trial and temptation, but yet covered with an invisible shield so that wherever he or she went, he or she would be guarded and protected from the evil influences that are in the world in almost every place. You see, the follower of Jesus is engaged and at the same time guarded against the stains of the world. Father, You've given us a lot to think about in this first chapter. Thank You. And I ask, Lord, simply that You would continue to teach us to be disciples of Jesus, to be like Yaakov and like His brother Jude, bondservants of our Master Jesus Christ. We praise You and lift up Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.